So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani and today's episode is um, part two of our podcast on veterinary ethics and animal welfare in clinical practice. I'm not going to have an iTunes acknowledgement introduction for this episode, we're just going to um, dive right in. And I'm joined um, once again by Martin Whiting, who is the lecturer in veterinary ethics and law here at the RVC. So in part one of this two-part podcast series, um, we discussed at some length some of the, I guess, the more kind of theoretical background thought processes that maybe one needs to have in, in your mind when you're thinking about veterinary ethics and animal welfare. And what I wanted to do now in part two of this um, mini-series was to look at some specific clinical scenarios, and Martin's going to help us to, I guess, put some of that more theoretical discussion um, kind of into context in, you know, in the context of um, some clinical scenarios that you may have encountered or you may go on to encounter. Some of this is going to be, dis- you know, depending on what part of the world you live in. Um, so let's, um, well, let me welcome you back again, Martin. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you very much. And for agreeing to let these podcasts become two long parts. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's dive straight in then and get on with um, the first clinical scenario that I wanted to talk about. So this is an old dog that has aggressive terminal metastatic cancer that is causing the dog a severe amount of critical illness and morbidity um, such that the patient actually needs to be hospitalized in order to try and um, provide the required therapy. Now, the dog's carers are intransigent that they do not want their dog euthanized, while you and your colleagues feel that the dog is suffering unreasonably and that euthanasia is in his best interests. So um, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on how we should be thinking about this scenario in terms of veterinary ethics and animal welfare? Mm, I can try. <laughs> So there are multiple things that you have mentioned uh, in this scenario, and we probably need to take them uh, step by step. So, so one is there's, there's a chronic condition going on, so how, does, how, how should we be dealing with chronic conditions and perhaps communication with the owner and so on? The second is this end stage of life, which I think we dealt with palliative care in the, in the first episode, but we can talk about the end stage of life uh, and um, the desire to euthanize by some and not by others. And this very little concept you've got in there right at the end that says that euthanasia is in his best interests. I think we should probably just touch on that mm. a little bit. But, but first let's start with chronic conditions because um, we're faced with chronic conditions with so many others, uh, other scenarios like um, I, I mentioned uh, arthritis in uh, the previous episode. But liver disease and kidney disease can be very slowly progressive chronic conditions. And it's a real problem to communicate to the owners about quality of life assessment. Um, Because when we see an animal on a daily basis or multiple times in a day, we don't necessarily recognise how it's deteriorating over time. And if we want to say we're going to uh, end this animal suffering at the point where its quality of life is unacceptable to it and myself, then we need to decide when the animal reaches that point mm. which if an animal deteriorates only a tiny amount every single day you don't notice i mean it's quite common um in general practice that an owner may bring an animal in because it's old and it's slowing down a bit uh, the vet recognizes that it has um, arthritis gives it some uh, anti-inflammatory tablets and the owner comes back a week later and says you've given me my puppy again mm. because it was in a substantial level of pain but it's 
uh, deterioration was so slow and progressive the owner didn't necessarily notice. You take away that pain and it's back to its youthful, bouncy self. So we need to work out how it is we can detect um, the quality of life deterioration with chronic conditions. Um, and one of the important ones is at point of diagnosis of the condition. So the owner may notice an acute change, which is how we recognise it's got a liver disease or it's got kidney disease or something else, um, that we know with our professional experience is going to be chronic, uncurable and ultimately lead to its death. And that conversation needs to happen with the uh, owner or client at that point about euthanasia and when that's appropriate to do it and when it's potentially inappropriate to do it. And I think probably one of the best ways to do a best framework to use for the owner is to get the owner to really think about that individual animal, what it enjoys, what it doesn't enjoy, what it likes to do, what gets it motivated and what, what doesn't. So we can say those things that it finds interesting and it wants to do in its life, they're going to be our markers. So that when we objectively assess this animal on a monthly basis or, or weekly, if it's quite rapid, we can say, okay, now it's crossed this one, it's unable to do that, it's unable to do X, Y, Z. That's the time when it gives the owner and you as the vet, or, or the whole team actually, time to come to terms with this animal's deterioration in an objective way. Because it, it, it's very easy to, to convince ourselves that it's, it's not that bad. Mm. But if we set these goals, these... They're not goals, really, are they? If they set these um, uh, quality-of-life points mm. where the animal uh, ceases to be able to do something, then we can see almost graphically how it's deteriorated. Um, and that really does help someone come to terms and come to understand how this disease has progressed. And so... So if they want to stop the animal suffering before the suffering is too great, there's going to be obviously a level of suffering as it deteriorates, then we can use these markers as a way to uh, plot that out. So I guess um, you know, if you do referral work and maybe you haven't had, you've been a, referred a case that has kind of reached a point, so you haven't had the luxury, I suppose, of having had that time and those conversations with, with the pet's carer, and you are presented with a case that you feel... And you could say, yes, you're making your own value judgment on that, but let's just go with it. Um, I guess I want to press you a little bit more on what one does when the carer says, the fact that you're recommending euthanasia, I'm not going to do it. And you feel that that animal is suffering unreasonably. What's the legality of that situation? There's a little bit different conversation to, um, you know, from the welfare ethics point of yeah. view. But I guess I want to also... At least in the United Kingdom, what's the kind of legal position that the veterinary staff have? Yeah. Um, so, so we as veterinary surgeons uh, are not allowed to just euthanize an animal because, uh, against the owner's wishes uh, because we think it should be done. We don't have the power to authorise destruction of that animal. Uh, that power resides uh, with the owner or with the police or animal inspector. So under the Animal Welfare Act, it's quite clear as to how that process needs to take place. It needs to be a communication with the police, uh, where the police authorise you as the veterinary surgeon to destroy somebody else's property. Mm. Um, and that's kind of, it's a, it's a very brutal way of putting it, <laughs> yeah. but that's really how the legislation lays it out. We're yeah. dealing with somebody else's property, we want to destroy that property, the police need to authorise our actions to do so. Now, that's the very precise way of understanding it. It is a bit more vague than that because in general one would hope that a veterinary surgeon is not going to destroy somebody's animal 
if it's not needed to be destroyed. Mm. If if that animal isn't in terrible pain or, or some other really serious welfare problem, the veterinary surgeon hopefully won't go ahead and just euthanize it. So there needs to be some extenuating circumstances why the veterinary surgeon is going to breach what the legislation says specifically, but they're going to do it for the purpose of animal welfare. Um, I'm not going to say it becomes a defensible action, but it's certainly understandable as to why they're going to act that way. So we'd have to then say in court, if it goes that far, um, has the vet acted inappropriately? And I wouldn't like to speculate on how any individual court would decide mm. on these matters, but we would hope that the essence of the Animal Welfare Act, which is about preserving animal welfare, would be taken and that the, the situation that the vet was in would be understood. Um, different owners will object to euthanasia for many different reasons. Some may be religious reasons. Some may be pure denial they haven't accepted that that animal is in the state it's in. It yeah. may be a very sudden illness that's come on yeah. and the owner can't accept that it's just happened, yeah. which is completely understandable, as you know from your bereavement sites, it's a completely understandable thought process. And some may be against euthanasia because they feel guilty. Yeah. You're asking them to sign a bit of paper that signs the death of their loved companion that they've had in their house for 20 years if it's a yeah. cat. yeah. So these are the concepts that we perhaps need to be working with in order to bring the owner on board yeah. with why we're recommending euthanasia. Yeah. Now, I just want to touch upon that concept of euthanasia being in its best interest. Now, it's very hard to say that euthanasia is in anything's best interest. Uh, ending of suffering is in an animal's best interest, absolutely. Uh, now, there are many ways in which that can be achieved. The most common and most practical and, and cheapest is euthanasia. So I wouldn't deny that, that that's certainly there. And, and quite often the, the common practicality of uh, ending suffering is euthanasia. But, it, but we need to just be a little bit careful when talking about euthanasia being in someone's best interest, uh, because it's not always a 100% truthful statement. And that's that element of doubt or that element of uh, misunderstanding is something that owners will will grab onto, any, any pet lover will grab onto. Mm. Is it really in his best interest? So, um, I mean, I, I'm getting the sense that, um, well, no, and this is obvious, and I, I always say with these podcasts, like, I sort of ask questions, I have, you know, like sometimes I have to ask these questions because it's kind of, um, I want people to, to listen to a discussion about the situation. Um, Thinking about my own career and especially doing critical care work and seeing some of the sickest animals, if you like, um, we have certainly faced scenarios where we've come across this situation where we felt, let me try and be accurate here, we felt that to uh, prevent the animal from having unnecessary suffering, we had two options. One was euthanasia and the other was an induced coma. Um, I can't, I'm not sure if I can think of a situation where we induced a proper coma state, but we certainly, you know, have induced a certain state of uh, mental dullness, if you like. And we're going we're to get into the realms of territory of human medicine here mm. in terms of euthanasia yep. and, and yep. giving lots of opioids or whatever that might be. Um, and as you say, our, our way of trying to deal with this kind of a situation is to be patient, give the pet carers time, try and explain things to them, understand the context in which they, they are making their objection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I don't want the question to imply to anyone listening that I'm saying, there's always cases that we want to put to sleep and the clients won't let us, what do we do, right? <laughs> but, I, but I think that we, especially working in a referral critical care scenario, we have encountered situations where 
you know, we felt like we wished that they would agree. And the challenge has been to try and, you know, work with them. Um, and I take your point about, you know, alleviating of unnecessary suffering. But the reality is that inducing coma states is, you know, financially, practically, logistically, and to what end? Um, you know, I don't know that that is a realistic option for us in the clinical practice. So I think euthanasia, sadly, in some situations, is our only way of alleviating the unnecessary suffering, right? So whilst, strictly speaking, I agree with you, I don't know how, what we do with that information as a, as a practicing clinician. But, um, but I think you touched on a very good point there. Um, uh, <clears throat> the public's understanding of euthanasia is probably mostly from the discussions in human medicine because they're the ones that hit the news. They're the ones you, you read about and you see on the BBC and so on because human euthanasia is such a controversial and highly debated topic and there are so many cases that, that go out of the UK, go into Europe, um, where we see that uh, what the public want, what that patient wants and what the law says may be very different. And so when you talk to an owner about euthanasia of their animal, their mind is already in the framework of a human euthanasia discussion. So to understand it, understand the human euthanasia side of things is quite important, not because we're going to emulate what's going on there, I don't think we'd want to, um, but we should understand that that's the mind of the owner as well. We deal with euthanasia every single day. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very common thing. You see the animal come in, you see it as a puppy. You vaccinate it, you see it throughout its life. You're then responsible at the very end for euthanizing it and handing back the ashes to the owner a week or so later. Mm -hmm. We're so used to this concept, mm -hmm. whereas the owner, it's going to happen two, three times in their life. Yeah, it's really interesting, though, because, um, again, with my, with my bereavement site, you know, there's a lot of people who, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say what their take on euthanasia is in people, because obviously that's sort of, it's a bit cliche, but that's, um, that stance, which is, wish we could euthanize humans like we do dogs or something. You know, you hear that, I hear that fairly often, actually, that I wish I could have gone that way, um, or I wish I can go that way, rather, not, not talking to the dead. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so let, let's move on, though, because, again, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you about these things till next week, if you, if you let me. Um, so the next scenario is, is kind of changing tack, actually, and what I wanted to do was talk about something that is a bit of a chestnut um, and so let's say you've got a bitch of a breed that is relatively predisposed to dystochia, something like a bulldog, other brachycephalics, whatever. Um, so she's had a litter in which she developed dystochia and then needed to have a cesarean section. And at that time, the client actually declined to have an ovarian hysterectomy done. The bitch was then mated again um, and is presented this time for an elective C-section on the basis of her previous dystochia. The client is very clear that she does not want the bitch spayed and plans to breed from her again. So how should we be thinking about this scenario in terms of veterinary ethics and, you know, what are our options, thought process options and practical options? Well, this is like a, a real ethics exam for me. <laughs> <laughs> there could be lots of scenarios to try and work out uh, in, in quite a short time. Now, these are... Um, uh, to me, these are some of the saddest cases. We've talked about uh, terminal diseases and animal suffering and kill shelters and so on. But, but actually, these ones, the ones of dystochia and unnecessary breeding, are for me some of the, the, the hardest ones to resolve. And I think this is um, a, an outcome of, of years of... Uh, missed opportunities of conversations to be had by veterinarians with breeders and, and breeding societies. Because we shouldn't be in the state we are in today. 
That conversation should have happened a long time ago, and essentially this situation should have ended a long time ago as well. We have a professional obligation to the patients under our care, which that given situation is that bitch. So we need to make sure we treat it in the best way we possibly can. Um, should we or should we not... Uh, well, um, spay the bitch at the same time as in the C-section um, is a very controversial one but I, I would steer us away from that part of the conversation because actually what we need to do is educate this owner this owner is the one with the problem if we, if we do spay that bitch let's say we might get into trouble professionally we might get sued and bits and pieces like that but there's nothing going to stop her going mm. to get another one mm. and breeding again mm. so actually this immediate situation is probably much more symptomatic of a chronic situation of lack of communication of animal welfare between uh, vets, vet nurses, the whole veterinary profession, and breeding societies or people who, who may not realise the problem that's going on. So you may be completely unaware of it. Uh, uh, ovary hysterectomies um, uh, are very commonplace in the UK amongst many people, but for breeders, obviously, it's not something they're ever going to want to do because... Uh, the animal, the dog to them is um, a beloved pet uh, and, and a fine example of its breed, no doubt. But it's also a mechanism of uh, their attempt, the owner's attempt of perpetuating this breed as a fine example of this animal. And um, some of them may be doing it commercially, so it's a, there's a money issue there. Um, and can, I, can I just interrupt you? I guess the one, what I want to say is that I'm presenting you these scenarios, but I've certainly encountered dog carers in this situation that have turned around and said, okay, look, second time we're, we're spaying her. Yeah. Right? So they're a bit different from the, I'm presenting you these kind of intransigent situations on purpose in a way because that yeah. sort of adds to the discussion. Yeah, of course, but, of course, so, yeah. You know, we, we just, I, I'm just conscious to always point out that I'm not assuming that all people that breed their dogs are, are like this because, <laughs> 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 you know, yeah. kind of clear about that. But, um, but there's also a slight issue there of normalcy. Now, normalcy is, is what we would consider to be normal. Um, we would like to say that's a health-related uh, value of normal, but it's not always a health-related value of normal. So, so owners of these breeds that are quite often unable to give birth naturally may consider it normal for that breed. Mm, and that, again, is a communication problem. Um, I remember there was a piece of research done here about uh, noise in brachycephalic dogs and the amount of snoring and so on. And one of the researchers asked the question of, um, does your dog make unnecessary snoring noises or noises at night and so on? And a lot of people said, no, well, other than what's normal for a pug. Yeah, yeah. You know, so understanding what's normal for the breed helps our communication with the breeders of that, those dogs. Um, it doesn't mean we need to accept what's normal. Um, we can still be striving for better. But it's, it's an important challenge point when it comes to education. Uh, we've got to move their mindset away from this is normal for the breed into actually that's probably quite abnormal for, for a breed, uh, a dog of this breed to always require a C-section in order to give birth. So um, <clears throat> we don't, don't answer this question. I'm just going to make a comment. <laughs> I guess um, in some ways I could have asked you a broader question about breeds that have inherited breed-related disorders, right? So we could be talking about brachycephalic dogs in general, for example, and perpetuating those breeds and those sort of things. So I suppose I focused on dystopia and the need for C-section a bit more specifically. Yep. So I guess it, 
it's a fairly invasive thing to yeah. be doing, right? Um, so, so that's that's all I wanted to say about that. But let's move on to our next situation, which again is another humdinger. Um, and this is a scenario which, again, you you may have faced, and I certainly did when I used to be in, in sort of day practice. Um, so, someone brings you in their young, healthy, well-behaved, well-adjusted dog, and requests euthanasia on the basis that they are moving home and have just decided that having the dog is no longer something that they're willing to accommodate in their life. Um, how do we think about that scenario? Mm. The important thing is not to be judgmental from the outset. Because uh, the reasons the owner gives you when they bring the animal in may not actually be those true reasons. And there may be many other things going on in that, that couple's life or the owner's life that, that actually are the real underlying reasons why they don't want that dog around them anymore. It may be they're, they're expecting a child and don't want the dog because of the interactions. It may be many other things. Um, I, I wouldn't like to see a healthy, well-behaved, uh, well-adjusted dog being euthanized just because one couple or one group don't want it. Um, but we also have to face the reality of the oversupply of dogs in, in the UK and in most countries in the world. So we have to ask, what's the alternative situation? Mm. Um, and, and we should in some way be uh, grateful for these owners bringing the animal in that they recognise they're unable or unwilling to look after it any further and are seeking out the best option for that dog. So, so we can offer many alternatives. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon that many vet practices will have lists of people who are looking for dogs, who may have lo- lost dogs recently and, and are looking for a new dog to take on. They're, they might be going to rehoming shelters and getting them from there. And in, in many ways, this, this particular dog in this scenario is one of those that's in some way about to enter a rehoming centre. Mm. So there may be a way of passing that dog from that owner to a new owner, which would be the preferred outcome. Um, but a very careful conversation needs to happen that, that can advise that owner on all the other options that are available as to where this animal can go. Uh, with careful communication, you can perhaps drill down a little bit further to understand the reasons why they've elected for euthanasia rather than rehoming. Um, and try and take it from there. But it, it is a very, very difficult situation. And let's say, as a professional person, you're not obliged to undertake that euthanasia. If you don't want to, if you feel it compromises your value as, as a professional animal uh, caregiver, you, you're not professionally obliged to undertake that procedure. They've requested it. You don't have to do it. But what you should do is pass those owners on to someone who is more willing or able to handle that situation as well, um, but I would really want to know from the, these these owners why why they're opting for euthanasia over anything else, mm. and, and what are the drivers for them as to selecting euthanasia, and then trying to re-educate them or or re-guide them back towards rehoming. I think it's interesting because I think sometimes um, you know there's the guilt of euthanasia, but there's also the guilt of not having done the euthanasia and the knowledge that your dog is now living in another home and that you may be seen as not being able to have coped or not wanting that dog. And there's a different set of emotions attached to that versus the euthanasia, which I guess, you know, they might see that as they'll get over it and then that'll be that sort of thing. I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking aloud here, but um, and I think your point about, you know, I think people can get very emotional about this situation and that is not going to help, right, yeah. um, for sure, because you being emotional with those carers, 
Doesn't help. Doesn't it doesn't help. I think the other scenario that um, again I'm, I'm sure from a legal uh, professional standards point of view is you know is well it's, it's not right. Um, but you know you probably heard this and I and I know of it having happened. I haven't done it myself and not that I would admit that on the podcast, but I but I definitely haven't because thankfully when I used to face this situation. Um, did manage to get a resolution. But, you know, the situation where carers said, I don't want to be around when this is done, and then they've kind of left, paid the bill and left on the assumption that their dog has been euthanized, and then people have we own them, and, and, you know, that sort of opens up another can of worms, right, doesn't it? But but we're not, I'm not going to let you answer, because <laughs> we're going to keep the momentum going. So um, the, next, uh, the next situation that... Um, that I wanted to ask you about then was I've kind of lumped these two situations in together because I think in both cases what we're looking at is a situation where um, a procedure or an intervention is being performed on an animal that actually modifies its anatomy and therefore modifies its ability to display behaviours and so on um, that I, I guess in my simplistic way would say is not in his or her best interest. And these are the practices of debarking of dogs and declawing of cats. Um, these are procedures that we do not perform electively in the United Kingdom, but certainly is practiced by some individuals in North America, and I'm not sure where else in the world. And, you know, some people actually um, talk about it like it's a normal thing to be doing. I saw a post recently, someone was asking, you know, how other people, uh, what chemical restraint they use for their dechlorine procedures, and I just found that really sad because I thought it's just it's a, it's a discussion amongst colleagues about what they do, but it's sort of become an accepted part of what they do in a way. So I wondered if you could, um, I guess, explain a little bit more about why those procedures are done in, in basic terms, but also tell us a bit about what you um, what your take on those procedures is. Yeah, so uh, they're good ones. Um, the other one you can add in there is perhaps ear cropping, which is done in certain breeds of dogs. Um, all three of them, the debarking dogs, declawing of cats and the ear cropping, are to help the domestication process. <coughs> so we, as, as people, want to be living with animals, but we want to live with them on our terms we don't want our furniture damaged we don't want to be disrupted during the night or our neighbours to be disrupted all the time if we have a dog that we want to look vaguely aggressive we need its ears to look as if it's an aggressive dog you know it's it's taking an animal that lives in one state and actually physically forcing it to live in the state we want to, to be in so these practices will happen to clawing of cats is usually because they don't want them scratching furniture or or that wonderful anaglypta wallpaper that cats love so much to just tear off the wall. Um, the barking, debarking of dogs. It's, a, it's a quite a, a nasty surgical intervention uh, to stop that animal expressing its natural behaviour. And you're doing that to create a better living environment for you so that you can live more comfortably with your dog and not be disturbed when it's barking. And then we sort of think about other elective procedures that, that are performed in the UK, such as neutering, that's done almost every single day by veterinarians across the UK, which for some animals is done so that that animal is better at living in the environment with the owner. Now, we don't in the UK have a problem with that. That seems to be quite normal. We don't necessarily want the mess of an entire bitch around the house. We don't want um, some of the unwanted behaviours of an entire male dog. So we neuter them. So you have to wonder what the difference is. Why is Are you it... about to tell us what the difference is, or shall I voice a couple of possible <laughs> suggestions? You can go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I have my opinions. No, no, you go first. You go first. I'll sit and listen. <laughs> um, well, to, to me, 
we're looking at the individual best interests of the animal and uh, ear cropping of dogs, declawing of cats, debarking of dogs, they're not in the individual best interests of that animal right before us. We're doing it for, for our best interests. Um, and there is no other advantage. Okay, the, the debarking of dogs helps the neighbours as well, but that's, that's about it. Um, when we look at elective neutering, it's not in the best interests of the individual animals who are being electively neutered. But we have a, a bigger picture approach to that, and we sort of say, well, it's about population control, and we don't want these animals indiscriminately mating across the country and having even more dogs than the excessive supply we already have. So that's where I think the difference would lie between the, the UK and the US and our, our approach to elective neutering and their approach towards declawing cats. We're going to say it's not in the animal's best interest unless we can provide a larger population argument for doing it. I, I, I'm interested here. No, no, I, I, I agree. I suppose the only um, other thing I was going to throw in, which is completely not very well evidence-based and, and open for discussion, and again, I always find it very interesting that people are very passionate about um, neutering animals, um, but as long as they understand that the arguments are population arguments versus individual. Now, you have got the individual arguments of there are if some. you spay a bitch, then you yep. know, stops her getting mammary cancer, we think, and incontinence, and all that yep. stuff. You could still argue that it's still better for them to have their hormones intact and their organs intact until such time that those things become issues, and, I, and we're not going to have that debate here at all. But So I think you're your take on why we're at peace with those ideas from a population control point of view, plus or minus maybe some medical arguments for that individual animal against procedures that... Unless you take the view that by then allowing those animals to then have homes, you're helping with the population homelessness situation. But, I mean, I personally find them repulsive things to be doing, and I don't but mind saying that honestly on here, because, <laughs> you know, like, I'm sometimes I'm just going to uh, keep my, my whatever barrel dry, but... I can't get my head around how you, not you, but one as a veterinarian can, for these reasons, not for medical reasons, but for these reasons, do these procedures. Okay, well, let's take it... Let me say, in the environment in which those people work, if it is part of what is socially accepted and they're going to face that situation, like we're going to work in places that don't do this, or we're going to tolerate doing this and, and look at it a bigger picture, I can understand that. And, you know, again, I'm not being too... I'm trying to not be too simplistic about this, but on the face of it, when one looks at the situation, one thinks, really... But if we, if we take it a little bit further, and let's look at Northern Europe um, and their approach towards elective neutering. Yeah, yeah. Now, they place the burden entirely on the owner of the animal to look after it, to control it, and to stop it mating yeah. indiscriminately. We've taken that responsibility away from the owners and done it for them by, by neutering. So, so if you go to Northern Europe and actually many other parts of the world, elective neutering is something that's very much frowned upon, whereas we think it's okay, but we frown upon the US for doing declawing and debarking of cats. So there seems to be a, a huge social context to the acceptability of certain procedures. Yeah. Jump back 12 years, tail docking and dogs, perfectly acceptable in the UK. There are very few who are against it. Yeah, it is 12 years. Yeah, um, very few who were against it. And that's when change started to happen. Those few who were against it started to say, well, are we doing this mutilation for the benefit of the animal? Well, there's no evidence base to say that cutting off the tail is actually a better uh, situation for those dogs. Yeah. Is it purely cosmetic? Yes, it's purely cosmetic. So we're going to stop doing it. And between the United Kingdom, the different countries have taken that to mean different things as to to which dogs are allowed to have their tails docked and which aren't. So, so we can see this is a hugely progressive topic. Um, 
in some areas of the states, debarking, dechloring is really not acceptable at all. Mm. In other areas, it is. So there is a social drive and a change that happens. We, we as UK, change on a regular basis as to what we are going to accept in animals and what we're not. Northern Europe, again, it's a different situation. Mm. So I think it comes down to the animal advocates, so the welfare people, the welfare scientists who are studying this, and the social discussion that goes around what is the purpose or as we said in the first episode, the job of that animal in our lives. Yeah. What's the interaction that we're having with it? Why are we involving it in our, in our life and bringing it into our household? Yeah, no, I agree. All right, awesome. Let's um, got a couple of quickies to end with. The, the next one was, again, something that uh, I think is quite interesting. So it's, you said in the first episode, actually, about this idea that you graduate as a veterinarian and you're... Sp- I don't know why I'm saying veterinarian nowadays. <laughs> as a veterinary surgeon... Um, and I would just say there's nothing wrong with the term veterinarian. No. A lot of people think it's an Americanism. <laughs> but actually, the first veterinary journal we had in the UK in 1826 was The Veterinarian. Oh, there you so go. it is an English okay, term. I'll carry on saying it then. Um, and you say you know, you're expected to perform as a, as a veterinarian, right? And you know, one of the things was you have, the, you, you mentioned knowledge, I think, but we've also got this whole kind of practical exper- uh, expertise and what skills you have and so on. And so there's this kind of idea of the sort of having a go. So the scenario I had in mind was. Um, an animal needs a, a procedure that's relatively complex, right? Neither you nor anyone else in your practice has ever actually done that procedure, but the client cannot afford a referral. So should that practitioner have a go at doing that procedure? And then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question to that after that. <laughs> it's a great question. It really is a great question because um, we graduate from... So I get one get question. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they are. They, they, but... So we graduate from university with a, with a certain set of uh, skills, with probably a larger knowledge base than that set of skills. And, and somehow we're going to have to increase our knowledge base over time and massively increase our skill set. So how are we going to progress unless we do have a go at things? Mm. Um, but we must always remain within our clinical competency. That's one of our uh, code of conduct requirements. We cannot go beyond what we're capable of doing, which means we would somehow be stuck at that day one of graduation. (laughs) So we're always having to push what we can do. And it's always going to take some kind of professional, individual, autonomous judgment to say, I've not done this procedure before, but actually all the principles of this procedure fall within my recognised skill set. The entry to the abdomen, I've done that countless times before. The manipulation of that that tissue surgically, well, that's kind of the same as doing an end-to-end anastomosis. I I can have a go at that. I know that that procedure. So there are transferable skills. Just because it's a procedure you've not done before doesn't mean it's something you shouldn't do. And to progress, to become a better veterinarian, uh, a more skilled one, um, we do need to push the boundaries. It's what everyone has done. It's what happens in medicine, what happens in dentistry, everywhere else. We need to try the things that we've otherwise not been able to do. But we have to remain within our surgical or, or medical expertise. Which is uh, where the problem lies. Is, is You might be talking about a case here that's potentially beyond our expertise. Um, so it might involve surgical procedures you've not tried before mm. or, or medical techniques and drugs you've never used. So what do you do then? Well, I think you've got a couple of options. Most veterinarians in general practice will have a budget for CBD. And what you can do with that, if you have an excellent uh, relationship with your referral centre nearby, 
there may be a way of using some of your CPD budget with that referral centre to pay for that case to be treated by the specialist, but you attend, you assist, and you learn from that. And you've got a win-win situation for everyone. The referral centre gets its full fees and its... Um, its treatment done on that animal, that patient gets the best treatment it could possibly have, and you yourself have learned from that situation how to do the procedure next time. You could do another way around if if it's not maybe an advanced surgical procedure, maybe the specialist can come in and do some CPD for the practice, and the Mm -hmm. practice pays for it and does the procedure for you there. I think the second thing we have to consider is informed consent. Mm -hmm. So... One can't just go ahead and do a procedure you've never done before and don't think you have the technical skills for it on an animal without the owner being fully aware of that. So we have to have that quite frank conversation that the animal, unless it has X, Y, Z done to it, it can't survive or it's going to have this welfare problem or the other problem or whatever. The owner needs to be fully on board with what can happen. And and if we consider from the animal welfare point of view, if it's a surgical procedure, we induce anaesthesia, we can start the procedure if we realise we cannot do it and there's no other option for that animal. A terminal anaesthetic is no different to the euthanasia point that would have happened at the beginning. So so during the procedure, if you recognise you can't do it, then a terminal anaesthetic is the same as euthanasia, as long as the owners are fully aware of what's going to happen. One of the big problems I have with that situation is the give-it-a-go stance where you don't know whether it's been successful until the animal wakes up. Mm. And then you've got the problem where it's woken up from anaesthetic with an enormous welfare problem because it went wrong. Or the welfare problem doesn't manifest until a few days later. So the animal's been through this complicated and uh, aggressive procedure, if you will, uh, and then experiences suffering before it's then put down, rather than being put down at the very beginning. And some people take comfort in the fact we've given it a chance, Mm. but actually from the animal's experience, it may have been better to be euthanized at the beginning. So it's it's an interesting scenario, but really it's understanding what your professional limitations are, what your skill set is, and how far you can push that skill set, and whether or not the owner is fully informed about what's going on, always remembering the animal welfare is the primary responsibility. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think one of the things that um, wrongly can impact on people's you know, ability to halt the procedure, for example, is admitting that they can't do it you know there's a sort of psychological block that some veterinary professionals can have about saying i don't know i can't do this this is not working um and i think that sometimes can impact on some some of the things that are going on with people that appear to be doing things that on the face of it might look like how does that make sense to you that what you're doing is the right thing to be doing sometimes it's because they can't actually admit that they don't know what to do or they don't want to do better or do something different there's some psychology going on there i think that it's, it's not unique to that profession. It's, no, sure. it's in most professions. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes it's actually a very gradual thing. It's not a sudden change. It's a very gradual thing. You've tried one thing, you've tried another, you try a third thing. You're now getting very emotionally involved in this case and you really want to do your best. Yeah. And I genuinely think most of the time, the motive for the veterinarian is a good one. They're trying to do the best they can for this animal given the limited resources available. Yeah. Okay, cool. And um, our, last, our last question you'll be pleased to know. Um, <laughs> And, uh, again, this is changing tack again, and actually I wanted to ask you something that um, I guess when we said in the first episode about professional ethics, um, this is more of a kind of professional veterinary ethics type of question. And this relates to professional regulatory bodies. 
So obviously here in the UK we have the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons or the RCVS and all vets have to be registered with and regulated by the RCVS um, to practice in the UK. Now I know that the situation with the nurses is just a little bit less um, clear cut than that but let's not, let's not get into that here. Um, I, don't, I definitely don't know all of the details, but I imagine, at least in some countries, it, you know, there is a similar situation that exists. And I know that you can really only talk from a position of kind of expert knowledge about the RCVS. But one of the things that people often say is something along the lines of, and I'm going to put this politely, um, you know, what has the RCVS ever done for me? So I pay my annual fees every year and I basically get nothing for it in return. Um, so with that in mind, I wondered if you could say a few words about what, from your point of view, a regulatory body like the RCVS does offer. Um, what does it do for the profession from a professional ethics point of view? Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I, I do. I like that question. Um, <laughs> I know you like that question. <laughs> uh, what has the RCVS ever done for me? Um, it's like the Monty Python sketch. <laughs> but what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> Well, there's fresh water. But other than fresh water, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, roads. Well, okay, <laughs> other than roads. So what has the RCVS ever done for us as practising veterinarians um, and for the general public and for animals? Well, if you understand the start of it, the RCVS came about because there was a, a long-complained um, situation where, where the general public were able to perform therapies and interventions on animals um, in an inappropriate way. So there were some people graduating from, from the RVC back in the uh, early 1800s and people graduating from Scotland as well uh, as qualified veterinarians. But then there was nothing stopping the average doe blogs in the street performing procedures on animals as well. So we needed to have a system, and this is what we call the social contract, whereby the public give up their right to practice veterinary medicine on animals and transfer that power to those who are properly qualified to do so. So that's why we get the regulation of the vet schools as well. So we need to make sure that those people who graduate are properly qualified to practice the, the as they call it, art and science of veterinary medicine. And so we have this then uh, monopoly power situation whereby vets can do pretty much what they want for the animal, assuming it's an act of veterinary surgery, um, and the general public are not allowed to do almost anything for the animal. They can't uh, diagnose, they can't treat, unless it's under the direction of a veterinary surgeon. Now, that monopoly power situation is highly problematic because who's going to control those people who are in power? And that's where the RCVS come in, because they regulate and monitor those people who have that power control. Mm. Um, we need to have a situation where the public are fully... Uh, on board and trust the veterinary profession and you can only really do that if there's a mechanism to say this is the required standard to become one uh, this is what you have to do to maintain your status and if you do these things wrong you're out of here you're gone and only when those three things are in place can we say that we're satisfied with the standards that that profession has and this is this is common to all other professions medicine dentistry uh, human nursing um, lawyers they all have their own regulatory system that follows the same social contract kind of way it's the regulation of those who are empowered to prove that they maintain that power now we pay 300 pounds a year to be a member of the rcvs um in terms of what doctors pay uh, and what other professions pay, it's minuscule. Our, our professional regulation skills, uh, sorry, um, costs are very, very small 
um, for effective regulation over the whole profession. But it's hard to see that sometimes. Mm. When you're the uh, perfectly adequate, good veterinarian out in general practice, every year having to pay £300, well, they haven't really done anything for you because you don't need the regulation, essentially, uh, in inverted commas, because you're doing very well. But you're doing very well in a respected profession because those who are breaching that are being taken out and being disciplined appropriately. And those who are entering are entering only after a series of complex exams and training and so on. So the profession maintains at a high standard. So what is the purpose of the RCVS? Well, it's, it's kind of there to make sure the public interest is maintained in animal welfare. That is a, a correctly functioning veterinary profession of a correct standard according to the public interest. So the, what's the RCVS done for you? Well, it's given you the monopoly power to treat animals, essentially. Fascinating. It's really interesting that, hearing that explanation because, uh, again, I would um, I would be lying if I said that I'd ever taken my thought processes as far as that. So understanding that, I think, is uh, extremely useful. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to say, or do you feel like I've talked you to <laughs> the end of your limits? <laughs> no, I, I think we could carry on. There are so many more scenarios we could talk about, but I think we could probably end it there, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, so, look, thanks so much for, for today. I found it um, really interesting, and I hope that the uh, listeners won't mind me having indulged myself a little bit for these <laughs> last couple of episodes. Um, I think I said to you when we were off mic, as it were, that I think you know these are things that are part of our everyday activities as a practicing clinician, really. So in some ways, I shouldn't really be apologizing by wanting to spend a couple of episodes talking about them, <laughs> because I think it's... Um, entirely central to everything that we do and, and we probably don't spend enough time I think thinking about some of the situations that we've discussed and, and at least talking about them in an open and, and kind of honest way so that's really cool so thank you very much um, for joining me thank you for inviting me um, and to the listeners as always then do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways so you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the Royal Vanity College's Facebook page um, or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And just a reminder, as always, please take a moment to rate or review the podcast in iTunes. Um, I always say this, but I really appreciate that, and it helps others to find the podcasts with greater ease. So until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>